as summarized in Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's turn to Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism, which is on page 520 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally, as he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So far. After the sermon, we'll respond to God's word with hymn 82, stanza 1 and 3. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are at Lord's Day 4. And at the beginning, right from the beginning, I want to start by telling you that Lord's Day 4 is a difficult one because it deals with the consequences of original sin. And that's not just my opinion. This is even what Bavink a prominent Dutch theologian wrote, The doctrine of original sin is one of the weightiest, but also one of the most difficult subjects in the field of dogmatics. Because there can be no doubt that nothing shocks our reason more than to say that the sin of the first man made guilty those who so far from that source seem incapable of having taken part in it. Nevertheless, without this most incomprehensible of all mysteries, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. End of quote. In some Adam sins thousands of years ago, and you are guilty. That's what shocks our reason. That's why Lord's Day 4 also shocks our reason. Yet, Lord's Day 4 repeats this theme of justice in, in question and answer 9. He says God's requirement demanding the law is just. And in the following two questions and answer, question and answer, we confess that God's punishment is also just. Right. The goal of the sermon is to take captive our reason that shocked, reason that screams and cries out that this is unfair and make it obedient to the truth of God's word. So the theme for this sermon is God meets our sin with justice. That's our theme. God meets our sin with justice. 
We'll consider three points. First, God's requirement is just. Second, God's judgment is just. And third, God's treatment is just. We'll start with the requirement. I want to draw your attention to the biggest difficulty of question and answer nine in Lord's Day 4. It's not talking about only Adam and Eve. No one will have a problem, no one has a problem if we're only talking about Adam and Eve. Imagine if the question was this, did God require Adam something he cannot do? The answer would be, of course not. He was created so that he was able to do it. But the difficulty that we experience is that the same requirement is demanded from his descendants, his descendants who cannot meet God's requirements. You have to see that the catechism does not make a distinction between Adam and his descendants in regards to the requirement. Like Adam and his descendants are lumped together in that one word, man. Right? For God does not... God do man an injustice, and he says, no, God created man so that he was able to do it. Why is that? How can there be no distinction between Adam who was able to keep God's law and his descendants, descendants who was unable to keep God's law from the beginning? And there's no answer. That's what shocks our reason. Adam and his descendants are treated as one unit. And that's not just what the confession does, that's what the Bible does as well. This is from Scripture. God treats Adam and his descendants as one unit. We could understand this better if we think about Adam acting as our leader, leader or a representative. An example that's often used is, is how a nation enters into a state of war. That's done by the head of the country, whether that's a prime minister or a president, whoever has the highest authority, the head of the country. And when the head of the country declares war, the entire nation enters into a state of war. And that decision that the head made impacts the rest of the lives of the people of the nation. For example, in World War II, cities were bombed in in Britain. Food was severely rationed. People evacuated to the countryside. And people were conscripted. And to give a a personal example, I too was conscripted and I served in the army. Obviously not for World War II, but in the Korean army because South Korea technically is still in war with North Korea. That was not a personal decision. I personally would not have made that decision, but that was the decision made by the head which impacts my life. So it is with Adam and us. Adam is our representative and head. And when he fell into sin, it impacted all of our lives. And this is what the Bible teaches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we read, In Adam all die. Again, that's What scripture tells us, God sees the entire human race as a unit. And this is important to note as we'll come back to this later. God will be, God is consistent in the way he deals with humanity as a unit. So that also means 
he would require the same requirement from the entire human race, whether that's Adam or his descendants. There is nothing unjust about that on God's part. Even though, unlike Adam, we start off with a disadvantage. Why is that not an injustice on God's part as a catechism, as we confess with the catechism? In order to answer that question, we have to ask, who made Adam's descendants incapable of keeping God's law? Did God do that? Was there injustice on God's part? No, it wasn't God. It was man himself. In fact, if we read Genesis chapter 5, we see that Seth was born in the image of Adam. If, if Adam had not fallen into sin, it would have been that we would, all the descendants would have been able to keep God's law. But Adam, when he fell into sin, although that's hypothetical, he, Adam robbed that gifts from his descendants. So it's definitely not an injustice on God's part. On the contrary, we should actually thank God for requiring in his law for what man is unable to do. And why is that? Let's think about what God requires in his law. Turn to question and answer four in the previous page. That's Lord's Day 2. This captures the essence of the law. What does God's law require of us? And so Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depended all the law and the prophets. The essence of God's law is to love God and to love our neighbors. Now, what would it mean if God did not require this from us? Can you imagine what will happen if God did not require that from man because he is unable to do it? If God did not demand love for God himself and his neighbors and our neighbors, that's the end of any love, any relationship between God and man. It means that God has nothing to do with man, and man will be on his own, in his own misery, separated from God. And imagine what the world will look like when there is no love, only hatred for each other. It will be a state of war, of all against all. That's a phrase written by Thomas Hobbes in, in the Leviathan, an English, English philosopher. His observation about man is accurate, and he puts it eloquently. He imagines what life would be like without a strong central authority, and he argues that it will be a state of war of all against all. And I quote, in such a condition, in such condition, there is no place for industry, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. 
And that's exactly what happened when Adam and Eve fell into sin. Starting from Cain and, Ab Cain and Abel killing Cain killing Abel and just the whole world degenerating into evil and violence. Is that what we want because we are unable to keep God's law? No, God's requirement, which we questioned whether it was unjust, reveals his mercy as well. We see that his mercy is not compromised in his justice. Even in his just demand, his mercy shines. He does not leave us in our sin and misery. He does not abandon us in a hopeless situation. And just because we are unable to keep God's law, just because we're born that way, just because we have a birth defect, doesn't mean that God abandoned or aborted us. We see in his law that he still desires to have a relationship with us. Right after Adam and Eve fell, God was the one who initiated that search to seek them out, to have a relationship. And that's what we also see in God's law, requiring, requiring love in his law. And that's what I mean by we should be actually thankful that God requires his law from us. Through it, God reveals that he still loves us. Through the law, he teaches us our sins and misery so that we can seek our salvation outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. And plus, he gives us his Holy Spirit that we may be able to keep his law with the revelation of God and with the Spirit of God. We see that the law is, in fact, a blessing. And then we arrive at quite a different destination, haven't we? The question shouldn't be, does not God man do man, sorry, does not God do man an injustice? We should actually marvel at why God still wants to have a relationship with us. Why does he bother giving us his law to us? That's only because God is gracious and merciful. That's why he requires love from us, love for him. But there still is a problem the problem is that we are disobedient. We did not meet his requirement. So in his just judgment, he will punish us. Which brings us to the second point, that God's judgment is just. That shouldn't be news to us. Right from the start, even before Adam disobeyed, God made it clear that there will be a punishment, that there will be consequences for disobedience. He said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Adam and Eve disobeyed. And God told Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that's the description of death. Death is common, but we still have to remember that death is a part of God's just judgment. As we confess in our catechism, that it is a punishment now. As our catechism points out, it has both a now aspect, a temporal aspect, and an eternal aspect, and we focus on the judgment now that happens on this earth. And what I'm calling you to think about is that, that Death is not simply the way things are, 
but it's a judgment against sin and sinners. My point is that death isn't the original part of creation. Death is God's judgment for disobedience. Admittedly, death is often personified as the enemy in in scriptures, but at the same time, death is a powerful evidence of God's justice. You can see that death is still under the authority of God, of our sovereign Lord. We, we get a biblical proof in the Revelation. When the seventh seal is opened, we read this, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with swords and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. We read that they were given authority. By whom? By the sovereign Lord. And more specifically, Jesus Christ, who holds the keys of death and Hades. So death is not something that naturally happens. Death is God's, a sign of God's faithfulness. It shows that God hates sin and sinners. Death shows that God is faithful to his word. Right? God said, you will surely die, and so Adam died. God says, the wages of sin is death, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. God, no death, the, 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 the death, the, the, when we see death all around us, it shows that God is absolutely faithful to his word, and his word is powerful. And so all of us will die as a consequence of sin the sin of Adam, and also our sin. Now, the terrifying part. I mean, death is terrible in itself, but there's also an eternal punishment. And we know that there's eternal punishment as, because, as I've been saying, God's word is faithful. God is faithful to his word, and his word is powerful. Unlike death, eternal punishment cannot be seen on this earth, but God, who said, you shall surely die, also said that there is punishment of eternal destruction. Based on everything that God has said is true and turned out to be that case, we must conclude that eternal punishment is also real. Just as no one who sinned except Enoch and Elijah escaped death, physical death, So no sinner will escape eternal judgment. And so we move on to the eternal punishment, namely hell. I admit that this is a heavy topic. But if I do care about you, I have to tell you that there is hell, that there is eternal judgment, especially since there is a way out from it. Revelation chapter 20 writes that the worshipers of the beast will be tormented with fire and sulfur. The worshiper of the beast refers to those who do not obey God, who serves Satan. Revelation 20 verse 11 writes, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Their smoke of torment goes up forever and ever. 
what would eternal punishment be like? It was something worse than anything that anyone has experienced on this life. And there's no shortage of pain and suffering on this earth that will make us shudder. It's not easy to think and imagine how, how hell and eternal judgment would be. Perhaps we'll have an easier time if we think of this through with, with an example of a wicked and wicked people. Think about the Christian martyrs, for example. Many were burned to death. Many were tortured. And since hell is a place for enemies of God who did such evil things, would God punish enemies, his enemies? Would God punish those who tortured his children with anything less than what they have committed? God is just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No. Their punishment will be an everlasting punishment. The sense of our morality, the sense of our justice cries out for hell. Imagine Hitler dying, committing suicide, and there's no consequences for what he has done. There's a sense of vindication knowing that there is hell. Like at least we can think about hell for a place for the enemies of God, people, evil people like them. It will be pain beyond imagining. And it's eternal suffering, as, as we read in Revelation chapter 20. Eternal suffering, think about that. Meaning that suffering for a million years does nothing to reduce the length of suffering. It's million years upon a million years. That's everlasting. And that's what's reserved for those who are disobedient. We're thinking about hell in, in, with the example of wicked people. But now we apply it to ourselves as well. What I've explained is what everyone deserves. Not only those who have done terrible things, such as stealing, adultery, and murdering, but everyone. You might think that you are a decent citizen. You haven't broken any laws of Canada. You haven't done any serious crime. But you've still broken God's law. God says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Which is also quoted in question and answer 10 in our catechism. Like what's demanded in God's law? God's law, like I said, demands perfect love for God and our neighbors. He says all things, we must obey all things. Now, how could you obey, for example, the 10th commandment? It says you shall not covet. God's law does not just try to regulate our behavior as if he's just looking at our actions. God's law demands and dictates what should arise in our hearts. There's no way anyone can obey God's law. Everyone falls short to the glory of God. So we, when God punishes everyone with, with death and hell, he does so justly. So God's judgment is just. Let me just bring one more argument for hell and heaven. 
Like these are things that come after this life. It's, it's, it concerns the afterlife. And the afterlife is something that we don't think about very much or very often. But deep down we know or we've been confessing all along that there is in fact hell. Otherwise, why would Jesus be called our Savior? What do we mean when we call Jesus our Savior? What is he exactly saving us from? Is it only misery and pain and suffering and death in this life? If that was the case, how many Christians that you know are suffering, pain and suffering, and who died? So has Christ failed in that case? Like there are Christians who are dying while they, because they believe in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean when we confess that Jesus is our Savior? Confessing that Jesus Christ is our Savior necessarily means that, that he is some, saving us from something. Right? That he is saving us from eternal judgment. Even if someone suffers, a Christian suffers in this life, Christ is still our Savior because he saves us from hell and he brings us into heaven. So we know that there is eternal judgment. And we've looked at that, that it is just. And finally, we turn to God's, that, that he is, that he treats our sins, that his treatment is just. So far we've seen that God requiring on his, us his law is just and also that our punishment is just. But we could still ask along with the catechism, is God not also merciful? So that we could try to wiggle ourselves away from that judgment so we could avoid it. And well, we know the answer of the catechism. God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. And how can this be? Our confession in its first article writes that God is simple. That means God's characteristics does not conflict with each other. It doesn't compromise each other. That means that God's justice, God is just in his mercy and he's merciful in his justice. And that's what our catechism is pointing out so that we wouldn't expect that God will overlook our sins because he is merciful. The fact that God is merciful doesn't mean that God will give up his right to punish us. God's mercy and justice exists together. So we find ourselves in a hopeless situation. The only option left for us is to be punished now and eternally. But God is simple. That also means God's justice does not compromise his mercy. God in his mercy provides a way out for us. The fact that he is just doesn't mean that he won't show mercy. This is a mystery. It's, we cannot grasp it with our, with our minds, but that's how God is. Remember that at the beginning of this sermon, we were talking about God, how God sees humanity as a unit, how the head of the nation determines the state 
of all the citizens, and that through Adam all men became guilty. We saw that seeing Adam as a representative wasn't compromised, does not compromise God's justice, which means seeing Adam as a representative of the entire human race was just on God's part. Like we're told that that mechanism that feels so unfair was in fact just. We're told that in Adam all die. Like in fact, why do I have to suffer because Adam sinned was not the right question to ask. That mechanism that God sees the entire human race as a unit, there's actually a gospel in that as well. Because that same mechanism is used to bring about our salvation. And that's why Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, compares Adam and Jesus Christ side by side. And that's because, as we read in verse 14, Adam was the type of a pattern of the one who was to come. That means there's a similarity between how Adam acts and how Jesus Christ acts as our head. head. Adam acts as our head, acted as our head, so did Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again in Romans 5, verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is because God uses the same mechanism of representation. That's God's merciful treatment of our sin is still just. As Adam represents the entire human race, so Christ represents those who believe in him. Think about the fact that we are guilty for our original sin. That means we are guilty even if, even without committing any actual sin. And that's when we confess that the children are born, conceived and born in sin. We are guilty of our original sin. We are guilty even before we imitate Adam's sin. And that's where we feel the unfairness, whatever that means. But when it comes to Christ, we're made righteous in the same way. We are made righteous without having to do one righteous act. Without imitating one single act of Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. Because if we were required to do a single act of righteousness, we would be lost forever. We will not be able to obtain righteousness. And that's why Paul calls it the abundance of grace. That means undeserved grace and the free gift of righteousness, highlighting free gift. Like there is, we, we talked about how a head of the nation impacts the, the lives of the citizens, and, and perhaps there's an, a room for an analogy that shows the positive side of, of the headship of representation. Sometimes this happens in sports where a player begins the season being injured, and he doesn't play a single game or perhaps a few, only a few games during that season. 
It just happens to be on the right team at the right time, and the team wins the championship. And when that happens, that, that injured player who never played a single game, perhaps, also gets to participate in the victory. He gets to take pictures. He gets to hold the, the Stanley Cup or whatever. And then he also gets a ring. And we think that's fine because that's how representation works. He, he just happened to be in the same right team at the right time. And that's kind of how things are with us and Christ. Although we were not in no way an athlete, or nor are we injured, we're actually much worse, much more under, undeserving than that. We are actually dead in our trespasses because Christ is our representation. Because he is our representative, we get to share in his victory and triumph and in his righteousness. So we might feel that something is unfair when we're treated as a unit with Adam, but with every sense of unfairness that we feel with the association with Adam, there's an answer in Christ. Grace shines. Like if you want to be technical, think about this. There's, there's Christ, Christ as representative and Adam as representative. If we want to be technical, which, who are we closer to? Like, where do we have more connection? Is it to Adam or is it to Christ? Well, if I follow, if I trace my genealogy, Adam is actually my biological ancestor. There is a biological link between Adam and me and you, right? And children of kings are princes and princesses. Children of slaves are slaves. We inherit our father's last name and likeness. I mean, so technically, we should only be in, in, in Team Adam. Adam should be our representative and head. But that's not the case when it comes to us. In fact, God groups us with Christ. Somehow, we have a stronger connection to, Ad, to Christ than we have with Adam. And how could that be? We're not physical descendants of Jesus. Jesus had no children. There's, there, he left no descendants. Like what connection do we have with someone who walked this earth 2,000 years ago, years ago in Middle East? And what claims of relations do we have with the Lord of Lords, the Lord of the universe, who sits at the right hand of God? What claim do we have to the Son of God and we have absolutely nothing? So how is it that we are counted? How, the, how is it that Christ becomes our representative and head? By pure grace. Because God, in his sovereign good pleasure, unites us with his Son through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Christ is our head and we are his body. And try explaining that logically. It's only because God is merciful. It's only because God is gracious. Christ is our head because God is gracious. And having Christ as our head is the best thing. It's, it's the most gracious thing. Because we, we talked about how we've been looking at how Adam and Christ act in a similar way as a representative, but there's also something that's diff different. 
as, as verse 15 of Romans 5 says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. There's something different about Christ being our representative. You could say, when we, when we think about actual sins, the way we sin, that, that Adam is an accurate representative. Adam sin, we sin. Adam is an accurate representative of us. But when you look at Christ's, Christ, his, his body his, and his head and his, his headship, there's a big difference between Christ and us. We can't really say that Christ is an accurate representation of us because Christ is perfect, right? Yet, yet God counts us as a unit with Christ. Like Christ is not only the representation, and that's because Christ is not only our representation, but is also a substitute. Right? There's a difference. That means when, when, when God looks at us, when people look at us, we, we see, okay, they are sinners, and rightly they deserve judgment, but because of that distinct head that they have, that representative they have of Jesus Christ, they will receive righteousness and salvation. And then what about that punishment that we talked about? And it's because Christ, is our, as our substitute, also suffers in our place. Christ pays for our sins on the cross. God displays his, his perfect justice and mercy through Jesus Christ. God shows his justice against sin by pouring his wrath on Jesus Christ and shows mercy on us by forgiving our sins and adopting us as children, as his children. So, Adam might be the pattern of Christ, but Christ, when, he, when, he, when we're linked together with Christ, there's much, something much more greater than what we see in Adam. That's why Paul repeats that phrase, much more, much more grace, abundant grace, free gift of righteousness is what Paul marvels at. So, does it still feel unfair that we are lumped together with Adam. Sure. But then, how, how do we understand? How is it fair that we are lumped together, that we are associated with Jesus Christ, that Christ is our head? Every time we feel that unfairness, that we suffer the consequence of sins, we should marvel at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All we could do really is humble ourselves before God and marvel at his justice, mercy, and grace. We should marvel at his infinite wisdom. We should praise God. And great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Amen. Let's respond to God's word with him. 82 stands at 1 and 3.
afternoon, let's confess our Catholic Christian undoubted faith with the Apostles' Creed, which is in page 493 of our Book of Praise. I will recite it out loud. Please follow along in your hearts. Page 493 of our Book of Praise. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your righteous presence with boldness because Jesus Christ is our head. We thank you that you did not abandon us because we are sinful. We thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself while we were still enemies. We are deeply grateful that you have sent your precious son, the son you deeply love and gave him up for us. We thank you for making us righteous through your son and sparing us from your judgment. We are grateful that you have made us his body, and Jesus Christ, our head. Father, we pray for matters concerning this world. We pray that you would have mercy on us in Canada. We're concerned about Bill C-6. We pray that you would prevent this bill from becoming law. Will your almighty power preserve the freedom of the church to compassionately share the truth about who we are, to offer help, support and answers to those struggling with questions about their identity and sense of belonging. Help us that we, churches in Canada, may be found willing and ready to offer this help. Gracious Father, creator of this world, protect the thousands of vulnerable children from abuse and exploitation, also through the voice and action of your church. We pray that children find shelter from confusing ideologies and and healthy families and communities. We pray that you would grant clarity and insight in COVID-19 to the researchers and leaders of the world. We pray that you would intervene in such a way that all around the world, your children could gather together in corporate worship. Grant us this privilege again. Father, we think of United States. We pray for this United States with their polarization and turmoil as it becomes more and more faithless. We are concerned not only for the country itself, but also its impact given its position and power. We pray that you would have mercy on them and that they may return to the Christian roots that they had. Revive them. Father, we do not know what will happen in the future, but you know. In this time of unrest, help us to look to Jesus Christ, 
the ruler of kings on earth, grant us peace, which comes from knowing that Christ rules this world in infinite authority and wisdom. Continue to remind us that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even if it does not seem so. We earnestly pray that Jesus Christ would come swiftly and fully establish his kingdom on this earth. In his name we pray. Amen. This afternoon, you're again reminded of the opportunity to bring your thank offerings outlined in the bulletin. As our final song, we'll sing hymn 31. We'll do so because in Romans 5, we saw that we receive God's abundance, grace, and the free Greek free gift of righteousness only because Jesus Christ is our representative, only because he is our head. And when we sing hymn 31, we'll repeatedly confess that Christ, he is our victorious head. Let's sing hymn 31, if able, let's do so standing. Mm -hmm. 